Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The following is a high-five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort. High-five casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200. Games. I want again. Platoon, present cell phone. High five. High five. Casino. Casino. Win at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up and welcome into a special edition of the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. I'm Daniel Salerson alongside Pelicans.com writer Jim Eichenhofer. When I say special Pelicans podcast for the next two days, We're going to look back at the previous decade as we head into a new decade as 2020 is upon us. We'll go back in time to go through 2010 all the way up to now as far as a look back at the Pelicans and Hornets history as, of course, this team was the New Orleans Hornets not too long ago. And there's no better person to do that with than Jim Eichenhofer, more just so he's plenty old and has been through everything under the sun with this franchise and so, Jim, I appreciate you joining us today. Well, it's great to be here, and I would like to point out that you've been here for, what, eight, almost nine years now going on? So you're no spring chicken yourself at this point. Absolutely. I feel like I've been here for so much longer, but you're right. <laughs> I was here um, in 2011, and we'll get to a moment where I was a part of or sort of a part of mm-hmm. when we get to the Chris Paul trade is one of our things. But again, as we mentioned, this is a two-part series. Um, we will start with today. And we'll go through from 2010 to 2013. And the reason why we're only stopping 2013 is we're going to break it down by moments in Hornets and Pelicans history. And then tomorrow we'll wrap up the decade with some moments starting in April 2015 and go all the way to present day. So, of course, Jim, who has been here um, since the start of time, can kind of fill us in on what we've missed out even before this decade, which I think is important to kind of go back to that, Jim, before we get into 2010, just on kind of where the franchise was at that point. You know, I'm really looking forward to this because I'm feeling very sentimental. I'm sure this is one of a million podcasts and shows that are kind of looking back at the decade that was. Um, I feel like we should have some special kind of music going on here. but um, And also, I'm also looking forward to it because, you know, with as hectic as things are, especially during the season, we don't actually really get to go back and think and talk about stuff that was even things that have been really important. I feel like it's kind of one of those things in sports where you always move on to the next thing. There's another season coming. There's a bunch of moves in the off season. So <clears throat> I'm looking forward to to um, just kind of being able to give a, a different perspective on things. And also just with, as we've talked about in some of the podcasts we've done with former players here, I really enjoy having the distance and time separation from some of the events that happened to be able to talk about them because it just allows you to maybe see things a little bit more clearly and, uh, and, and, 
genuinely at times just be more honest about things because there's, there's you know things of it's over and done with there's no controversy there's no angst about different things that, that have happened and i think people can accept the truth in reality maybe a little bit more easily than they could if it was happening at this exact moment but um as far as just kind of setting the table for 2010 and the decade that we've just gone through or that's about to end um <clears throat> I want to go back to give kind of background and context for the franchise. I started in November of 2005, so the team was in Oklahoma City. They had been there for a month or so. And it, it was interesting to me, especially when I think back on this, um, when I started, the person that hired me, his name is Brian Deese, he, he, he left the organization that season, so he's he's been out of the mix for a while. You scared him away. <laughs> yeah, he only, could, he only could last a couple months with yeah. me working under him. Um, but I remember when I was hired, and, and people, people, I'm sure most, the vast majority of people listening to this know the background of why the team was in Oklahoma City due to Hurricane Katrina. And I remember when I came in and, and started for day one in Oklahoma City, he looked at me and said, Jim, you know, I know there's a lot of uncertainty right now. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with the franchise, what the future is. We're, our plan is to go back to New Orleans, but w- who knows what's going to happen. But he said, just be patient because everything will get settled in, in, in time and everything will be good. Don't get stressed about it. Don't worry about it. So the team moves back to New Orleans in 2007. There's a lot of question marks about the future. Is the team going to be able to stay here permanently? The beginning part of that season, we had problems with attendance where there there weren't there weren't a ton of people come to the games. That 07-08 team is still the best team in franchise history. Attendance take improves, and it was a great season. But before that, when at the beginning of the 07-08 season, the people that I worked with, whoever was above me, said, Jim, be patient. Everything's going to be settled. I know there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but it's going to be taken care of, and everything will be fine. Don't get stressed out about it. Um in 2010, which we're gonna about to go into the list, when there's rumors that there's issues with the finances of the franchise and that the NBA eventually has to purchase the team, <clears throat> I sit in a room and people say, Jim, be patient. Everything's going to be settled. I know things are in flux right now, but eventually everything is going to be taken care of. Don't get stressed about it. So, like... To me, and I've I said this a bunch of times back then, this was obviously right before you started working here, one of the things that was the most frustrating and unique, but not really in a good way about the experience of being here from 05 through 09 and then 2010 was that <clears throat> we spent so much time talking about stuff that wasn't basketball related because we had so much, so much uncertainty about the future of the franchise. Obviously, Hurricane Katrina was a horrible thing that happened to this area, and it it caused so so many um, problems in terms of the team's being able to cement itself. And then there were other issues with the the ownership of the team, obviously being in flux for a while. So um, to me, that kind of sets the stage for what we got into when we started 2010. And unfortunately, I don't know how much people necessarily understand this if they were only casually paying attention, but. What happened, I think, from 05 to 10 or 11, um, which was also Chris Paul's rookie year was my first year, so I had the unique um, perspective of being there for basically the beginning of his career. I think a lot of the things that happened from 05 until 10 or 11 were part of the reason that when Chris Paul and David West left, for example, that that was a big basis for that because they had gone through, as I had as well, they had gone through five or six years of constant What's going to happen? Is the team going to be here? Is the team going to move somewhere else? And I think 
when they made their decisions about what they wanted to do, that was a big part of it. And it, I've been here the entire time. Obviously, I can't speak for anyone else's decision making or whatever, but I do think that that was a part of. I don't think people realize that how how frustrating that was. Obviously, I'm not an NBA player. I don't have the same kind of leverage to say like, okay, I'm going to go here and you're going to pay me twenty million dollars a year. But for them, I think that that was part of it. And unfortunately, that was what was a major, huge aspect of what we dealt with through that five or six year period. And that was kind of what led us up, led us into this decade. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go in chronological order as far as the decade. We're going to start in 2010, obviously, and end up uh, where we are today. Um, but we do start with this is a moment that I was not here for yet. I was mm-hmm. actually with the Orlando Magic at the time during the 2010 2011 season um but the nba eventually purchases the hornets and you're run by then um for a certain period of time so take me back to when the announcement was made what you were told and kind of how that kind of changed things for that year you know what it's funny i think the my first reaction as was the case for many other people was just complete shock to hear that the nba was gonna had to buy the team because I think there had been rumors, but it, it was I'm, – I'm not talking about like over a period of months. I'm talking maybe even days. There was rumors that something drastic was going to happen with the ownership change with the team. But when it happened, I think personally I was like – I had no idea that this, this could even happen because I, I know people that really follow sports remember that there was a situation with the Montreal Expos in baseball where the MLB had to buy the team and they played games I think in Puerto Rico yep. or yep. Part, of their, part of their home schedule – but it never crossed my mind that this could happen in the NBA. I thought that the Expos thing was just so unique and that it would probably never happen again in a major sport. So um, that was my initial thing. But I think my, I, it was just one of those feelings. It was such a weird feeling because it was um, kind of like you were orphaned. It was kind of like there's 29 other teams that have things set in, in place in a certain way, and then you you're the only team in the league that has this setup. So – um, kind of quickly going back to what I talked about with when the team was in Oklahoma City and then the beginning, first couple of years, full-time back in New Orleans. The thing that always was difficult for me and very frustrating, including when the NBA bought the team, is it felt like we were the franchise that people felt sorry for. And, I, and you know, like in a competitive situation, like we're both of us are competitive, everyone here is competitive. You never want to be the, the, the team that people are like, Oh, you know, I'm. We feel bad for you because X, Y, Z. Like you want to be on the same footing as everyone else, and I think that was one of the things that I always remember back to, was I wanted the Hornets then, at the time, to be like everyone else, and it just felt like it took a long time. It was way too long of a period, unfortunately for a lot of reasons that were out of everyone's control. But um, that was the main thing that I, that kept I kept thought, thinking about. But, you know, what's interesting, though, when I look back on it, especially with the amount of time that has passed since then, I really don't think on the court and within the basketball part of it, it affected that much. It was really once the – when you started getting into the offseason and you started having players have to make decisions based on what they were going to do. But I think basketball-wise, um, that 10-11 team got off to a great start. Um, they ended up winning 45-ish games, played the Lakers in the first round of the playoffs, did a really nice job, um, shocked a lot of people by winning game one in L.A. of that series. They ended up losing the series in six games. But it was a very good year, and I, I honestly don't think that the NBA um, ownership of the team had that much of, of an effect, at least for that season, 
it had a lot it had a huge effect later on as we'll get into but um that 10-11 season actually turned out to be basketball wise and on the court to be pretty good well this will kind of transition into december of 2011 but also during that time there could it was an impending lockout you know looking at that was the last year of the labor agreement between the players and the owners and so not only did you have to worry about the stability of the team without an owner but you had to worry about whether you were going to be working just because sure. of the fact that after that season you didn't know how things would go and sure enough there would be a lockout leading into december 2011 when the chris paul trade went down yeah and the, to the NBA's credit, and really the people that were running everything here, um, there were a lot of people that were worried about the lockout in far, as far as, you know, there's 29 other teams, like I said, that have one setup and we have a different one. Does that mean that we're more likely to be laid off during that? Because there's if, you, if you're working for an organization that's been in place for 35 years and the owner has, has probably people that work for him that are coming to his family gatherings like people that are actually part of your whereas we were kind of completely there was no no ties we didn't have any ties to people in the nba so but to their credit like it didn't change much in the lockout we um everything was kind of the same none i don't think anyone got laid off everyone still got paid all the time and everything was fine but then obviously you mentioned the the chris paul trade um this is this is a this is a such an interesting topic i feel like in the franchise's history and i feel like i could talk about this for a long time but i don't want to make this a a, a three-hour podcast i appreciate it. I th- we, we have new years to attend so. <laughs> <laughs> right right we have uh we have things we have to get to yeah. but um i think one of the things that stands out to me and i guess first of all like you came in you came in right you came in right after the trade, right? So, yeah. So what happened is I actually reached my agreement. This is not a contract situation, but I was hired um, a few days before the Chris Paul trade was announced. Mm. So I actually remember I went back home to Marietta, Georgia, actually just trying to get ready um, to make the move because because of the lockout, the the posting of the job was right after the lockout happened, went through the interview process, and as soon as it ended, they go, we need you to get here now because preseason games start in a week. So I remember sitting in a restaurant and seeing Chris Paul has been traded from the New Orleans Hornets to the Los Angeles Clippers. And I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be an interesting start to my career here (laughs) in New Orleans. So, yeah, as soon as I got hired is when the trade happened. So I wasn't technically here for it, but I was here right after it. And there was really not a lot of time to kind of dissect what happened because you had the season to get ready for. Yeah, and, and, you know, you said that you saw on the bottom line that he was traded to the – Clippers, obviously, a couple hours before that, I think it was, um, he was traded to the Lakers. Right. And I think this is something that we discussed probably every day. I, I didn't know you very well at the time because obviously we're brand new here, but the people that I work closely with are the people that sat near me. We probably talked about this every day for, for a couple weeks until that season started, I think, on Christmas, that regular season. Yep. The, the first Hornets game was on December 26th in Phoenix, but... We, we argued back and forth about what, what was the better trade, the trade that was made with the Clippers, the one that was officially done, or the one that was traded with the Lakers. And I swear that this is not revisionist history because, I, I and side note, we've I feel like we have seen some revisionist history lately. I feel like calling the cable company and saying I did not order the revisionist history channel to right, my package. Exactly. But, um, but I was – I was always from the beginning. I thought the Lakers trade was a better trade because um, I thought that the veteran guys that they got, they were going to get in that deal, were better players. You can compete for a playoff spot, right? Still. 
and, might have been a French playoff spot, but you're still competing. Sure. And it was so it was so frustrating to me to hear people try to make the argument because I disagree with it so much that the the Hornets were better off with the trade that they made instead of the Lakers one because if they had made the one with the Lakers, they would have been quote unquote stuck in the middle of the NBA. My argument always was though that you can trade good players. You can trade players that have a ton of value. You can't trade guys that aren't. So I never understood the I, the logic of it's better to trade. It's better to get players who aren't as good as other players that you could have potentially had. And especially at the time, if you think back on it, Chris Paul was only two years removed from being runner-up in the MVP voting. He, he finished in 2008 second to Kobe Bryant. In 2010... Or 2011, he was still probably top 10 player in the NBA. I mean, he was a top 10 player in the NBA as of a couple of years ago still. So uh, it always bothered me to think that the haul in that trade was not what I thought it could be or would be. Obviously, I'm not a GM, and I'm, obviously I can't sec. It's easy to second-guess things. Right. But I just – it it just it, – it bothered me so much, and I feel like that even though obviously the team was poor – that season, and I think 21 and 45 off the top of my head in the lockout shortened season that ended up getting the number one pick. It it's a, it's a it's such a huge what if to think of like if they had done the trade that people had reported where it was you know Goran Dragic, Luis Scola right. was still a really good player at that time. Kevin Martin was one of the best scorers in the league. Supposedly they were going to get Lamar Odom, and then they were going to um, turn that into another trade that they could get assets for. So it's just. It was really frustrating to think, and obviously, you know, the Pel- the Hornets slash Pelicans, if we're going to be honest, don't don't have a ton to show for the, the last decade. No. Um, it, it, it's just frustrating to think of of how little, ultimately, just being brutally honest, how little little they got out of that trade. You know, right? Eric Gordon has proven to be, I think, a good role player. He's a he's a He's probably in the best, most fitting role for him right now where he's in Houston and he's a, a dangerous guy. Who He sometimes starts, but he comes off the bench. Um, and de- just the rest of that pa- the package, they drafted Austin Rivers, also a good player. But it's just frustrating to think that they didn't really get any huge foundation piece out of that trade ultimately. Right. And Goran Dragic is still in the league, so you he's never know. Yeah, he's you, still a really good, too. He's still a really good player. You just never know. You know, we don't know. Again, we're going back in history. We all the what ifs. You don't know how long Drogic would be a part of the Pelicans or Hornets at the time family. So mm-hmm. um, it is interesting how um, that trade kind of started all these pieces unraveling. And we talk about uh, the NBA owning the team. Well, let's go to April of 2012, our third moment of the decade. And that is Tom Benson and the Bensons purchasing the New Orleans NBA franchise in April. And I think obviously stating that where we are now, a, a huge part of this franchise, you knew that this team would stay here. A sense of stability uh, when the Bensons purchased the New Orleans Pelicans, or at that time, the New Orleans Hornets. You know, ultimately, there's two separate things. There's the basketball aspect, obviously, and the business aspect. To me, there's almost no argument, I, I think, that you could make that that wasn't the big, the most important turning point in the franchise as far as off the court. Because as I referenced when I talked about the previous decade, and how many times someone sat me in a room and said, be patient, everything will get settled, everything will be fine, don't get stressed out about it. To me, that was ultimately the moment when the, all of those questions finally left. That was when you could finally say, okay, we know we're in New Orleans, we know that we can, we don't have to worry about that, we don't have to look over our shoulder, we don't have to worry about moving, and we can really focus on the basketball part of it, which I think we've really done very 
almost exclusively over the last seven years since that move happened. And um, I don't remember, I'm not sure what you, you remember about the lead up to that, but I, I remember being very concerned because, you know, you're checking ESPN almost every day to find out the latest reports about who's in the running to buy the team. And it just seemed like there was a period of time where almost all of the, or maybe all of the reported people that were the most likely to buy the team were West Coast people. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying only a few years earlier, we saw what happened with Oklahoma City where they, 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 the team was purchased in Seattle. There was an effort made to keep the team there, but it, no one really believed it. Right. And so my fear was always that there's no one locally who's going to buy the team. And if they're not that motivated to keep the team here because they want to be somewhere else, guess what? We The ownership change happens and we're going to go through another, who knows, two or three years of uncertainty of like, well, they're trying to keep the team here, but it could move. Yep, absolutely. So the fact that the Bensons were the ones that purchased it, you're right, because I remember going through all of them, you're saying, oh, this group has made a bid, this group has made a mm-hmm. bid. If this group gets it, there's no uncertain, there's no certainty that they're going to keep it in New Orleans. If this group gets it, there's certainty that they might stay here, but they're going to try to fix some things. And so right. for someone that was just started a year ago, you know, the fact that this was basically the start of my NBA career besides one year in Orlando, that, you know, this could have been it for mm-hmm. a lot of us is if they, sure. move, if they do decide to move or they make changes. And even just the sense that with new ownership – they can go through the whole structure of the team yep. and say, well, we're going to get rid of these people or we're going to get rid of this part. We don't need this. We have our own guys. Since so the New Orleans Saints were already under the Benson umbrella, you know, then you utilize both franchises in the one. So you just didn't know. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty with that. And so the fact that the Bensons came in, um, they did make some changes, um, but there was still a lot of stability out out of that, that kind of made you feel like you were going to be okay, which was important. Yeah, and I always wondered when I when I saw the reports about what the intentions of various potential ownership groups were, is you wonder how much how much of them when they're talking to the NBA, because you don't you just don't know are, how many of them are telling reporters, okay, I want to keep the team in New Orleans, and there's always this give and take about what the league wants. So I mean, I think there were probably ownership groups from outside the area that were saying to the NBA, yes, our plan is to keep it in New Orleans, but it was kind of in the back of their minds, like if things don't go exactly the way we want them to within two or three years, we want to have the option of being able to leave somewhere. And for me personally, from a from a selfish perspective, or just I guess the perspective that anyone would have when you're concerned about yourself is you just went through a bunch of years where this was a question mark. And it was like that was the last thing I wanted to do was go through a couple more years Obviously, during that whole stretch of time where there was uncertainty, you have people constantly telling you, like, hey, Jim, you should think about going somewhere else. You should think about doing this. Right. And so if that had happened again, I don't know. It might have been tough to to, to not beat back those those whispers of people saying, like, hey, man, you need to look around. You need to go somewhere else. Right, absolutely. And then that takes us just to a month later where um, the Bensons had some nice luck um, as they purchased the team um, one month later. The Hornets won the lottery. They were, I think, the third best odds of getting the number one. I think were, it was oh, fourth, fourth. Fourth. You're right. Yeah. Fourth. Yep. Um, that looked like, I think it was Charlotte. Phoenix was in front. Maybe I want to say Memphis. Yeah. If I had to guess. I can't remember. I, I remember Charlotte very vividly. Yeah. 
because they had they had such a ter- and they had such a rough uh, they had such a terrible season. They won like seven games. It was seven, yeah, seven fifty nine. Yep, yeah, exactly. In the so sixty six season, you end up getting the number one pick, which leads to Anthony Davis. And um, just judging by the the careers, no offense to Michael K. K. Chris, but the separation from one to two was obviously a quite big vast. Hit, was quite yeah. vast. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was a big moment in this franchise getting the number one pick. It really was. And you know, to kind of quickly tell a story or two about the lead up to that. I always thought it was funny that this happened again in a, a year ago or this this year that when the team in, at the end of the 11-12 season, um, the team won a bunch of games at the end of the year and people were tweeting to me, this was only a year or so after Twitter had kind of gotten popular, people were mad that the Hornets had won games yep. because they were saying that it was going to ruin the chances of the team winning the lottery. And I remember, very, I remember this so well that Marco Bellinelli was on the team that season and he had just started using Twitter and he was, he came up to me one time and he, he was like just completely baffled at why people were tweeting to him mad because the Hornets had won. And it was just one of those things where it was like, you're not, it's not even worth explain trying to explain <laughs> the logic of, of what we're talking about. But he was, he was so confused by that. And, but it was just funny that that team in some ways, the basketball gods, I guess you could say rewarded them because not for a second did they, say at the end of the season, like, oh, we're going to sit some guys. We're going to not try to win games. And Monty Williams was obviously the coach of that team. And they continued to to play it out until the very end of that season, which was kind of a brutal season based on they squeezed 66 games into three or four months or whatever. So um, that was how you ended up with the number one pick. But I remember so well the excitement that people had around the city for winning the lottery and how much – People thought that that was going to change everything. And even nationally, I remember this. I'm not sure why I remember this so well, but Larry Brown had said before the um, he was a prominent coach for a long time in the NBA, Detroit Pistons coach in 04 when they won the championship against the Lakers in the finals. He said, whatever team gets Anthony Davis is going to win 50 games. So I think in some ways that that gave people a little bit of unrealistic expectations. And I think when he came in his rookie year, obviously he turned into – a perennial all-star, but when he came in for his rookie year, I think that Monty Williams and the coaching staff realized, like, this isn't a guy that we're going to just expect to carry everything right away. And you remember Monty Williams all used to say, don't mess with the game and it won't mess with you, and I think that mm-hmm. was a big part of kind of the, the karma, the basketball karma that we're not going to tank, we're not going to lose games on purpose, and you end up getting the number one pick. Obviously, it's based on the ping-pong balls and the odds with the matchups and all that, but still... I remember, I think you were there too at Manning's um, with the watch party, just anticipating what was going to happen as far as getting that number one pick. And as soon as, you know, they always take a break when your team enters the top three. And so it was just us three teams. I think it was Phoenix, uh, Charlotte, and the Pelicans, Mm -hmm. or the Hornets at the time. Yep. And even it kind of reminds me back of last year when the Pelicans ended up getting number one pick with Zion, even though the odds were a lot worse for the Pelicans. um, But the fact that you were just sitting there waiting and ended up getting – as soon as they announced Charlotte at number two, yep. I mean, that place just went ballistic. And it just kind of a, it was a – after everything this team went through in the last year, um, going back to the NBA or the last two years between the NBA purchasing the team, mm-hmm. um, the Chris Paul trade, and then new ownership, it was just kind of like, all right, you're starting to see things turn into the right direction. It felt a little bit like justice, I think, yeah. to people. And I think across the NBA, I mean, we've experienced this twice. There's a lot of people that are bitter that – they that you won and they didn't yeah. win the lottery. Well, they call so, it was rigged because the <laughs> NBA owned right owned it just moments before. Right, but I think you're right though. Everything that 
that the franchise went through and every every everything that we had to deal with that in a lot of cases was completely unique that no one else across the NBA had confronted that definitely did make it a little bit more sweet and a little it made people even happier for the for, for the end result of winning that lottery. You know what's interesting? I wasn't actually at Manning's. I was in our offices were downtown on Poydras Street, okay. right across from City Hall back then, and I was in the office only in the event that the Hornets won the lottery so that I would be ready to be able to write whatever. And what's funny about that is I was recording off of TV. The lottery was on ESPN. I was recording so that I could catch whatever was on the broadcast. And so the moment that they announced the second pick to Charlotte, everyone that was around me started was screaming. And I kept that on my recorder for a long time because obviously I didn't I, that wasn't what my purpose was right. of of why I was recording, but it was just funny to 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 always to listen to that once in a while and just hear like people just just screaming because they couldn't believe that that happened. Unbelievable feeling, which definitely was a turning point for this franchise. And then you know we talk about between how long you've been here and even now that this is my ninth NBA season with the Pelicans or ninth season with the Pelicans that we've both been through everything underneath the sun mm. and that takes us to our last moment of this podcast which is the name change in january 2013 the hornets name goes back to charlotte when they get rewarded a franchise once again and then the hornets name uh or the pelicans name comes into existence here where you know there was a lot of voting and there was a lot of different things going around that the i know mr and mrs benson wanted a different name just because the hornets really didn't have anything to do with the city as yep. the Pel- as the franchise came from Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And so here you have it, um, as we're recording this seven years later, that this team is the New Orleans Pelicans and not the New Orleans Hornets, which also took some time to get used to how many times I said Hornets on a broadcast <laughs> during that first season under the Pelicans and just the confusion. And you see on national television, there's a lot of people that still had the Hornets colors under our name or mm-hmm. the Pelicans logo was wrong. It was just it, – yeah. it's interesting when you go through – between ownership changes and, and head coaching changes and GM changes, but you also go through a name change during this time. Yeah, another thing that, like you said, is just something that not many people get to experience. I mean, there's expansion teams that have new names and new uniforms and everything, but how many times does a team that's already in place change over everything, change over all of the branding and the colors and all the stuff that I just listed? So it was a very unique experience. I think one of the things that stands out to me the most with the benefit of time is realizing like you're going to have this happen with social media and everything with everyone having an opinion about everything. But it seemed like the first reaction to the name was, was mostly unfavorable. Even, even from people locally that I know that I had met in the five or six years after I had been moved, had lived here for that long were like Pelicans. I don't think I like that. It's not very intimidating. It's not aggressive enough. And, you know, not to go back to the revisionist history thing, but I actually, when I heard a few different options, I remember, I don't know if you remember some of the ones. I remember Angels was one of them. Yeah. I think partly because of this Saints Angels potential yeah. tie in, same city. Um, and well, there was a couple one other of the ones. the Rougarou, one of them or something yeah, like that? Yeah. I think there was like Swamp. Uh, Swamp Gators or something. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I think there was a couple of those. Yeah, but of the ones that were a little bit more conventional, and I can't remember besides Angels, what I'm, I'm not talking about some of the ones that were like absurd, ridiculous, whatever, ones that you would see in minor league baseball, but I actually liked Pelicans because the more I started thinking about or learning more about the history of Pelicans and realizing that it's Pelican State, 
I remember having this debate with people or argument with people of saying like, even some of the people that I worked with when we were still named the Hornets, I was like, I, I would pick Pelicans among the ones, the options that are out there because it just seems like it makes the most sense in terms of the local connection. And that was, to me, that was the biggest part of the reason for the name change in the first place was that there was no local connection in terms of the name Hornets. So, um, but, and then I think as, as you started learning more about the history of the minor league baseball team had been here right. for forever. That was new Orleans Pelicans. And I talking to some like older people, like not my age, like legitimately old people, older people, <laughs> they, uh, there were some, it was funny. There were some people who really liked it because they liked how it dated back to the baseball team that was here, like in the thirties, forties and fifties. And there are other people, older people that didn't like it because they thought, I, I don't know if they thought it was just kind of copying something that was already like, they wanted to think of it as just the baseball team and not the basketball team. But I do think overall that just like with, for example, when Oklahoma City got their team and it was called the Thunder, at first a lot of people had kind of a weird visceral reaction to it that they didn't like it. But over time, I think you get used to it and it doesn't. It's not even something that you think about anymore. Well, it's crazy. So I pulled up the article. It was from Sports Illustrated, uh, December nineteenth, twenty twelve, and it was the five names that the NBA attorney had filed trademarks for mm. for potential names. So it was the Rougarou. The Pelicans, the Mosquitoes, hmm. the Swamp Dogs, which is slang for an alligator, and the Bull Sharks, which could be found in the Gulf of Mexico. So those were the five potential huh. names. So when you think about it, if I was saying you're listening to the Bull Sharks radio network or you're listening <laughs> to the Swamp Dogs radio network, I don't know how much of a ring that would have had or what the color scheme would have yeah. been. Yeah. So, I'd be I'd be a little concerned about if you had to say bull sharks all the time too, that there'd be an F C C violation happening once in a while, so yeah, that's a that's a dangerous one, but that's that is interesting because really, if you look at that list, I mean, Pelicans is by far the most quote unquote conventional nickname of of that entire list. Well, well, the one thing that I didn't get about the people that did complain about it is when they look at mascots and they go, "A Pelican's not intimidating at mm-hmm. all." And part of my thing is one, if you've seen a video with a pelican attacking its prey, it's one of the most vicious birds you can look at as far as how they, you know, go into the water and, and get fish and things like that. Yep. But also the same thing, if you look at other mascots around the NBA and look at other teams, and I get, there's nothing wrong with any of these names, but the leprechaun for the Celtics is <laughs> yes. not the most intimidating person no. in the world. The Orlando Magic, there's nothing intimidating about being named after basically Disney. Right. And, and all right. of that's going on. You can go through the list. The Knicks. There's, I mean, there's mm. no mascots now and names of teams are not based on the scary part of it oh we're right. the you know we're gonna crush you we're gonna intimidate mm-hmm. you the phoenix suns they have a gorilla as a mascot which could be crazy but mm-hmm. nothing about that or the lakers or right. the clippers you can go right. through all these t- all yeah. these teams the yeah, houston the- rockets it's not it's not a which which animal or which um objective is more you know intimidating it's mm-hmm. more how it relates to the city so that was when everyone was arguing about What's so special about a Pelican? There's nothing scary about a Pelican? Well, there's nothing scary about an Orlando Magic team or the <laughs> Miami Heat. Yeah. Um, it's, it was just a crazy argument that was just got so annoying. That's true. You did hear that a lot. And I guess when you think about it off the top of your head, there's probably only a couple intimidating NBA nicknames like the Grizzlies, for example, is right. one that stands out. The Timberwolves maybe The Raptors maybe a have, a, have a dinosaur yeah. that is pretty intimidating. Yeah. yeah, there are some, but, you know, not all of them. And, and I will say to the credit of – I remember talking to him, and this was seven years ago. I wish I could remember the name. I think his name is Rodney uh, Richardson. 
He's a Mississippi guy. Mm -hmm. He was the person that designed the uniforms and yep. designed the logo. I think of all of the stuff that was introduced, I think the the primary logo as well as some of the other logos that came with it are the, is the most popular aspect, I think, of right. everything that they created. And what he created with the logo, I think, is an intimidating look. Um, it's it's just kind of like a, a pelican in action, a pelican swooping in, and I and if you look at the eyes too, this is a r really random note, but I feel like if you look at some of the sports teams that have tweaked their logos and made them more intimidating, the eyes part of it has been the thing that they've kind of like Arizona Cardinals right. is one random example, but um, they d he did a good job I think really with the logo, and I think across the board people have loved the logo from the very beginning and. As everyone knows, that's a crucial aspect of sports franchises. They've tweaked the uniforms a little bit. I think the lettering, for example, they made bigger, right. and they introduced the red uniform. I think has a is a little lot. I think is by far the most popular. Well, besides the Mardi Gras uniforms, right. the uniform that they have because it's so colorful. Um, but but uh, they did a he did a really good job. I think with with that part of it. As far as maybe you didn't think Pelicans was intimidating when you first heard it, but when you I think when you look at the logo, you have a little bit of a different attitude towards that. And a great color scheme, too, between the navy blue, the red, and the white. It's just been on the in the little bit of gold in it, at least mm -hmm. on the on the main logo and the wings. I think it's just been – I think they really did a good job with that. And so it's been a nice color scheme and a different change compared to the teal, a lot of teal that we were wearing yeah. uh, when you're the Hornets. And I like, I like the fact from talking to him, too, you could tell back in 2013 that they were trying to go for a traditional look more of a traditional look. They weren't going for – there was a trend in the in the NBA, which obviously the Charlotte Hornets and then New Orleans Hornets were part of, where teal was big, purple was big, some of the color – like gaudy colors, garish colors. But I think the goal with the Pelicans is – in the you can see it in the uniforms that they originally created in the logo was really more of like – this might be a franchise that, that more or less was – originated in 2013 and that's you know what kind of what we go by but it wasn't they weren't trying to make it look like super futuristic or super modern they were trying to make it look classic and classy and, and traditional and i think they they definitely achieved that all right so that will do it as far as the first uh part of this podcast or first uh edition of this podcast when in terms of looking back at the most memorable events of this decade we hit through five uh, the nba purchasing the hornets in 2010 the chris paul trade in 2011 April 2012, uh, Mr. Benson buys the New Orleans Pelicans or the NBA franchise. Um, a month later, to Anthony Davis winning the lottery or the lot Pelicans, then Hornets winning the lottery and getting Anthony Davis, and then the name change in 2013 of January. So we have five more things that we're going to touch on here in the next one. That will be on tomorrow's show, December 31st. You don't want to miss it. Of course, all of these podcasts are brought to you by SeatGeek. If you're a listener here and you have not used the SeatGeek app, with your first purchase, you can get $20 off if you use the code GOPELS, all one word, at checkout. Score the best deals on tickets with SeatGeek. All right, until tomorrow, part two, um, we'll kind of relive the second half of this decade with some memorable moments. Uh, we'll talk to you later.